0: All right, special show on the Jetset Rehab Education podcast where we explore all the world of physical therapy. Our guest today is Claire Frank and probably the one physical therapist that has had the biggest impact on jet set i would say and then if i were to ask 30 physical therapists you know that i work with who the greatest physical therapist of all time is it would probably be claire frank 99 kind. and i'm going to let jay introduce her because jay work is probably used to it because he's a teacher with movement links and he ends up doing that all the time anyways so go for it jay
1: Hey there, guys! Hey everyone who's listening. Um, yeah, so we're we're privileged and honored to actually have Claire Frank here with us mm-hmm. today. Uh, you know, we've been we've been chasing her for a while, and uh, this year I think with yep. COVID and how everything's just kind of slowed down, we're actually finally able to get her um, and you know spend some time really uh, getting to connect with her. I'll, I'll give you a little background, and then we'll have Claire introduce herself, but. You know, she's she's a very influential part in in our neck of the woods and overall throughout countries in in Asia, where she's teached internationally, as well as here um, throughout the United States. And she's really uh, advocated and pushed for the movement approach in, uh, you know, in in the therapy areas, um, as well as um, pushing forward with uh, with other concepts, including DNS. Um, which I'm sure there's many of us who have, have taken this. But overall, just one of the, the nicest, kindest persons you'll ever meet, uh, most humble people yep. that I've ever known, one of the most humble per- people I've ever known, or persons, should I say, that I've ever known. And um, I'm just privileged to be here with her. Uh, and I'm just gonna turn it over to you. Thanks so much, Claire, for joining us.
2: Oh, Thank you for having me. Thank you for the kind words.
0: Oh, uh, we also have Andre on the show, too. He's he's all right. <laughs> <laughs> so Andre and I know Claire because we went through the uh, Movement Sol- Science Fellowship with her, as well as Jay, so I guess all three of us did. And then, uh, so we actually were lucky enough to co-treat with her and then also uh, accept a lot of our teachings and everything like that. So I second a lot of what Jay said. So uh, I just wanted to... Um, Basically, ask a lot of questions. Maybe um, allow the listeners to get to know you and learn where to sign up for some of your courses, and learn a little bit about your background. So, I was—I figured we could start at the beginning. Um, where initially are you from? And right. tell us a little bit about your childhood.
2: Okay, I actually was born in Malaysia. Uh, for those of you who don't know where Malaysia is, is a little peninsula at the bottom part of the Asian, Asia continent. Um, Yeah, I grew up there. I was born and raised there. I actually come from a family of ten children. I'm nine of ten. So uh, my mom, my family definitely was a busy family. We didn't have much, but we we we, you know, um, as far as. Yeah, we didn't have much. However, my mom and dad, basically instill a lot of um, traits, I would say, just by modeling uh, humility, compassion, I would say particularly for my mom. Uh, So, you know, watching her deal with a family with 10 kids, (laughs) you can imagine the household. Um, However, I would say she actually, and I would credit her to... The, the values that I hold today: compassion, empathy, uh, always looking out for the underdog or the less fortunate, and giving it away. I mean, we didn't have much, but for some reason, she always had something, uh, something to give to others, those who were less fortunate than us. So I spent a lot, though I would say, eighteen years in Malaysia before I actually went to the United States.
0: Yeah. And uh, you could actually see a lot of those traits uh, watching you treat patients as well. Uh, Did you you. feel like any of that carried over into like your practice?
2: Yeah. Every time I actually work with a patient, let's say an older patient, Hmm. uh, in where I grew up, we always esteem the older person. Anyone who's older than you, you show a lot of respect and esteem. So whenever I see someone who is actually like my parents age, it's like you have to treat them with respect and I would treat them just like if I treated my mom or dad so you know in, in Malaysia we call everyone uncle or auntie <laughs> so I remember when my kids were young uh, and I would make them call anyone who was my age uncle or auntie and my my, my older daughter will always say well, uh, uh, is that really my uncle (laughs) 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 or auntie? So it's like, it's really cool because, I mean, I don't expect them to do that now, but you know, I grew up that way. And even when I go back to Malaysia, if I see someone who's older than me or my parents age, it would be uncle or auntie or someone who's older than my mom or dad. When I was younger, I, I would call them grandpa or grandma so can you imagine the family is no longer you know the immediate family it's actually an extended family of uncles and aunties and grandma and grandpa <laughs> so uh, I think it was yeah it's it's the way of that's how I grew up
3: Claire, um my grandma had uh, ten brothers and sisters and I never put I never knew that about you that you had that much that many siblings It's like, what is your, like, what is it like when you go back to Malaysia? Or like, what are your family reunions like? Like I bump into cousins that I never knew I had when I was like at the age of 25, so.
2: Yeah. I think when I was younger, I actually knew a lot of my cousins, my uncles and aunties, but now many of them, my uncles and aunties have all passed away. So we've kind of lost touch with some of our cousins, my cousins as well. So I would say on my mom's side, and she's the only living one among all her siblings. She's 94 now. So when, when I go back, um, when I, uh, as far as family reunions, uh, it's just whoever's in there, whoever's able to make it. But as far as the extended cousins, um, I would say I rarely see them now, except for our WhatsApp chat where you see tons and tons of cousins or relatives that I don't even know who they are now. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah.
0: So how did you, so what was your road to coming to the United States then?
2: All right, so I actually was a badminton player. Uh, So I competed competitively. I represented Malaysia when I was, for the junior team since i was 15. and then my claim to fame i would say was representing malaysia in the the international world games so to speak uh, at the age of 18. so during that time um, how i got to the u.s was there was a university in illinois that was actually recruiting players from asia to boost their program and the association in Malaysia basically submitted my name along with three other Malaysian um, players, my 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 teammates, basically, <laughs> so that because all of us were around the same age, uh, college bound, so to speak, and so it was competition between the four of us who would be who would be, who would receive that scholarship, and by God's grace, <laughs> I got selected. <laughs> uh, So I ended up in Northern Illinois University, which is in DeKalb. DeKalb, Illinois, which is like 60 miles west of Chicago. So that's how I ended up in Malaysia, uh, sorry, in the United States.
0: Okay. And then uh, how did you end up on the West Coast from there?
2: All right. So after playing, after finishing my um, degree in physical therapy in Illinois, Northern Illinois University, Um, I got married and at that time my husband and I at that time basically he wanted to go to UCLA and so we basically drove and made a trek all the way from the Midwest to LA Mm -hmm. and I've been in LA ever since and I don't know if I can go back to Midwest not because of the people but because of the weather (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's too cold for me <laughs> you're,
3: you're kind of ruined now after living in Southern California am... all these years
2: exactly
3: <laughs> so I I feel like we skipped a step so like what got you into PT
2: oh good question all right so when I first came uh, to first of all I didn't know what physical therapy was you know growing up in Malaysia I did not see physical therapy I grew up with a lot more um, traditional medicine or Chinese, you know, TCM, and as far as as well as the local traditional medicine from the the, the Malay community, didn't know what rehab was because at that time if we got injured we just kind of rested and hope it got better. <laughs> uh, there wasn't like at that time strength and conditioning or really I I had no idea what rehab was. Anyways. When I got to Illinois, uh, I actually got injured. It was my fourth ankle sprain. And the fourth time I actually sprained my ankle was horrible. My, it was black and blue. I had to be put on crutches. I couldn't, I couldn't put any weight on it. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is horrible. Um, anyways, because I wasn't on the team, They sent me to the sports medicine and athletic training room. And that's how I actually saw rehab. Uh, I didn't know what athletic training was. I didn't even know what physical therapy was. (laughs) To make a long story short, I got rehab quite a bit Mm -hmm. in the athletic training room. Was exposed to what beginning uh, acute care, acute, um, I would say acute rehab. And then later on, uh, was exposed to physical therapy because um, after I was getting therapy or rehab in the training room, I also exposed to physical therapy because I had other issues as well. And that was when uh, I would say I saw what PTs were and I just said, this is what I really want to do. You know, the kind of athletic training was great. But at the same time, when I was exposed in the PT clinic, volunteering because I was curious, I saw that it went beyond the sports world. And I think that's when I fell in love with it. When I start seeing, I I was in university, so I didn't, wasn't exposed to a lot of, uh, what you call it, um, um, stroke rehab or whatsoever. But I got to see another part of physical rehab that I was not even familiar with, which is non-sports injuries. So saw a lot of low back pain because of the college kids or other mm-hmm. issues. I actually was uh, exposed to a lot of RA patients. Isn't that interesting? Oh, wow. This was in college. Mm-hmm. Rheumatoid arthritis. Wow. One of my, my friends and colleagues, not colleagues, she's a friend. She wasn't in my classmate. Uh, she had RA. She had juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. Mm-hmm. And I've never seen one before. And so when she came to the PT clinic, and I saw the physical therapist working with her with joint and uh, um, helping her manage some of the symptoms and pain and deformities, I'm like, wow, this is is something that kind of opened my eyes that physical therapy goes beyond the, how I would say, the sports realm. So that was what kind of got me wanting to do more. (laughs)
0: got it got it jay if i could i uh... forgot about that
2: story actually
0: (laughs) (laughs) it's a good one i I didn't uh that it's like so interesting you're seeing ra patients in college you know
2: yeah
0: uh jay if i could pull you in uh do you remember the first impressions of meeting claire
1: Uh, yeah my my first impression i i was like I remember the, the first time I ever met her was during interviews. I, I just had heard oh yeah she was she was really good. Um, and I was just so nervous around her. Um, I I, I, yeah. I went into that interview process and I walked I, I walked in, I did the interview and such and I, I walked out. Um, and I was like, Oh my gosh, she hates me. Claire <laughs> <Cara laughs> is like she can't you know, she's stoic. got a poker face. She, she's got a good poker face. And so I was like, "Oh my gosh!" But literally, I, it was like you know, um, I I I went through that process, and and um, within a year, we 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 were like in a lot of con Ed courses, which Claire was teaching at the time, and I I, I learned it was the total opposite. I mean, I, I was literally really uh, you know intimidated or scared by her. I'm not gonna lie, but yeah, uh, but you know, it, it was it was a total opposite of what I, I envisioned. She was she was one of the kindest, and I I said it before, kindest, humblest people, Um, and just to go back to what she was saying about her, um, in regards to um, her upbringing, and, you know, her parents, and such, um, you know, you could see that in her, you know, she wants to help everyone, she wants people to learn, she wants people, she really extends herself to make sure that people understand concepts, and ideas, Um, and I've seen it in her classes, I've her mentoring. I've seen it in even her mentoring with um, us as instructors in in movement links, um, you know, she wants you to get better. Um, and, and I can see that is kind of at the root and kind of a, her part of her foundation, which was laid later, you know, from an early age.
2: Thank you. So I need to premise this. So yes, everyone thinks I'm like super intimidating. Yes. Yes. True. And because my face. Okay, so Nowadays because I understand how intimidating and how intense I can be just facially I before every class before I have my new set of fellows I actually show them a picture of my 1-year-old baby picture <laughs> and that 1-year-old baby picture actually has this frown already in <laughs>
0: You're like Harry so, Potter you're born with it
2: <laughs> born with this little frown so I tell folks look uh, uh, I I don't mean to look intense or intimidating this is actually how I was born with so I don't know if some of you notice that every time when I'm sitting I'm actually uh, sitting with my fingers <laughs> trying to <laughs> basically what's you call it called trying, trying to stretch the fascia out. So
0: for the listeners, Claire's stretching yes. the fascia between her eyes. eyebrow right. fascia. <laughs> She's stretching her <laughs> exactly scowl right out.
2: Okay, get rid of my skull. Yeah.
0: I was more the like the first time I met Claire, I was more intimidated just by her reputation. I don't I didn't really get that nonverbal um intimidation. It was more just like I knew she was so accomplished and she was so good that I was just uh, more intimidated by, like, um, how f- how much better she was than me. <laughs> and uh, I think it was just more of a reputation type of intimidation. How about you, Andre? Do you remember? I was surprised because
3: when I saw her, I was like, that's Claire Frank. Like, I just – I had no context. I didn't know what she looked like. I, I, I think I might have even, like, walked up to her and talked to her and, like, didn't even know that it was Claire Frank. So I when I found out, I was like, oh, I should – You scared now or something, you know, it was, it was interesting. Um, but just being in the clinic with her, it it was really where I started to see like the passion where she's like, did you see that? And I'm like, I didn't see it, you know? And then she, she'd have the patient do it again and and again. And I was like, she really cares about, you know, it, it, I feel like she'll take you as far as you want to go. If you want to be really good, she'll take you there. If you're kind of like, I'm just going to put in a little bit of work. Then she's like, yeah, that's, you know, that's what you need to know. So I, I feel like you get in what you put in with Claire.
2: Thank you, guys.
0: Claire, do you think there's ever like a moment where you could have picked a different profession than physical therapy? Do you ever consider anything like that?
2: No, I don't. Actually, and I think about it, uh, when I was growing up, because of the competitor that I was, I mean, my biggest goal was actually to be, world-class badminton player. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, life, there was a choice. Actually, when I was 18, I told you that it was either a scholarship or taking the scholarship, move away and give up my badminton career or to continue on and continue to pursue the dream of becoming world-class. Uh, I don't know. I really think it's once again, input from my family. Because mm-hmm. my family is very uh, i wouldn't say academic but puts a lot of uh, emphasis on education and I chose education route knowing I would actually give up mm-hmm. my dream of being world class so when I think of this, I think <laughs> physical therapy chose me
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> and I I don't know I mean, if you people ask me, would I have done anything else? I'm like, I cannot think of anything else. Of course, part of physical therapy is also my love for teaching. I didn't know if I want, I was going to be good at teaching or I even wanted to be a teacher. I, I come from a family of teachers, my father, my two, my oldest siblings. And so I remember thinking, I would never want to be a teacher. <laughs> yeah. But you never say never. <laughs> <laughs> For some reason, I don't know what it is. Was it DNA or just watching how good my father was in teaching or my mom, how she taught, taught us life skills? I'm not sure. Is it DNA? Yes. I think also from being modeled too. And then when I started teaching, I was terrified of teaching at first. I think I was horrible at teaching, but as I, but I I was horrible because I was, I I didn't know the mechanics of teaching, but then as I started teaching, I, people kept telling me that when I taught, they felt a part of me, (laughs) something was interesting. It's really interesting. It's like, it wasn't so much what I was saying, but what they caught, it was a piece of my heart, so to speak. And so from there, I mean, I, I, how I can tell you, people have, have told me that, that I, I spoke in the heart. I'm like, oh, really? What do you mean by that? I'm not sure because if I compare myself to people who are really good speakers, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm so not smooth at all. <laughs> I'm not articulate. However, I don't know. People, I feel when I teach now, I feel like I cannot really teach if I don't know if it really works. Mm -hmm. So yes, in that sense, I do speak from my heart. It's really hard for me to convince you if I didn't even put it to practice first. Got you. So that's where I am. mm.
1: (laughs) So, Clara, I I had a question. So, you know, to, to go back, to your story here so you know, just to bring it back here a little bit so you, you you moved to LA um you're a physical therapist now right um you know you're still years away from from really taking on you know and and getting you know getting your name out there in terms of a teaching career and with movement links and such what um what was the growth process there how did you get around movement how did you start to to get involved and, and, and start seeing that movement was a, a big piece of what physical therapists do?
2: I think actually it started from way back when I was being coached. I would say, I don't know if I loved move. Uh, I could say my coach was one of those coaches that made me look, reflect back on how I perform. And sometimes when he wasn't coaching me technically i mean talking about technical skills we would be sitting and watching my opponents play <laughs> it's pretty interesting because from i would say from really young that was already a part of me where i would look at my opponent's play of course my coach was looking more from perspective of strategy how do you how did a, a person strategize? I mean, it's basic strategies. But when he was coaching me, he was constantly finessing my movement. He, you could call it skills, but I will say the way he just kind of corrected my wrist or my hips without saying too much. He actually just kind of, I call it, now that I look back, what my coach did was external cueing he didn't teach the movement he just kind of placed my body in a certain way and had me feel it and when the i would say the stroke was crisp it's like oh i get it because you know sometimes when you're learning a movement you don't get it the first time Mm -hmm. and if you got it once doesn't mean you it's stuck (laughs) and so that's where the repetition would come So i remember doing all these drills he would be you know basically uh giving me a hundred shots so let's say i have to hit the the birdie to a certain corner for a number of times and then he will count count out of the hundred birdies how many actually ended into that little corner that i will uh that that was supposed to be aimed at so this is called repetition so <laughs> it, this is very who I am, you know. I take rep, uh, learning very seriously, but then learning movement requires practice as well. Yeah. I and I would say deliberate practice, not just practice.
1: Yep. So Clara, I don't
2: know if I answer your question, but you
1: <laughs> did. And, yeah. You know, yeah, I, yeah. I I've, I've heard you um, you know reference your coach. In the past, in in you know in some of the classes and such that we've taken, and even um, reference in in a sense from uh, the you know needing to commit to a process. Uh, if you're going to learn it, you, you really need to be more deliberate about it and really um, commit to it to learn it. So yeah, I I, I totally agree. I mean I, I, I feel like I've gotten better over the years only through um, you know trial and error and just continuing to be more deliberate about it. Um, you know, if you, it's it's easy to take any sort of skill or class or, uh, and, you know, just take it once and forget about it. Um, but if you're, if you're more con- uh, concerted in your efforts, you're generally going to get a better outcome.
2: Yeah.
1: And so I, I,
3: I think, would, I, I yeah. think of you now still, Claire, like when I'm in the clinic, I'm like, oh man, Claire wouldn't, Claire would have got on my case if I missed that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I would have gotten on my case if I missed that too. <laughs> you know, I still do self-reflection all the time. Uh, when i'm with my patients um when they don't get it you know uh, i'm not that quick to blame them i actually will blame myself first because Mm -hmm. i didn't create the scenario for them to learn better so actually i'm pretty hard on myself Um, uh, why didn't they connect how come i didn't connect with them how come this particular um, technique or approach didn't work with them yeah I'm constantly reflecting back, and um, and I think that has been a huge um, impetus for me to grow. And I can tell you, I grow so much not just from self-reflection, but actually from my patients as well. You know, I'm very curious when they get it. It's like, hey, Mr. Jones or Mrs. Jones, what were you thinking when it worked so well? What were you thinking at that time? And they'll tell me. They might use their own words, their cueing or analogy. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to remember that because it may work for somebody else. Now, the other thing that I really have, I feel that like a lot of my growth has been is through you guys. <laughs> through actually mentoring and teaching. Because when you all ask questions, I'm like, hey, you know, I never thought of it that way before. And so that's why you guys caused me to grow so i can learn from anyone anyone at all <laughs> mm-hmm. so that's something i i want to uh, i want to impress on on everyone who want on anyone who wants to improve themselves there is no one that you cannot learn anyone thing anything from you know i learned from anyone like someone hey you know a plumber i'm like hey he's i'm watching him do his plumbing i'm like hey why did you do that and he said oh this <laughs> is what i'm trying to do i'm like Hey, I wonder if I can reply that (laughs) to therapy. (laughs) So I wrote a ruder the system, huh?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's what you're saying is, uh, goes back to what Jay was saying initially, which is uh, you have a humbleness about how you teach. And uh, that brings me to another question. Do you have any other uh, character traits or personality traits that you feel have helped you develop as a clinician?
2: Willingness those to admit you're wrong. Mm, yeah. <laughs> That's a big one. <laughs> Many of us, uh, I would say, you know, I mean, I, I think, first of all, I told you that, um, I'm hard on myself, at the same time, I also learned to recognize that, um, being hard on yourself can be actually counterproductive. Uh, being too hard on yourself can be counterproductive. Because if you don't learn, you're just basically so hard on yourself, you feel sorry for yourself. <laughs> you right. don't get past that. So on the other hand, you also need to recognize what you're actually good at. Uh, and that's actually humility as well. well. False humility is different. It's like, oh, I'm not good at this. I'm never going to be good at it. That's false humility. So mm-hmm. having a balance between knowing what you're you're good at and also knowing what you can continue to improve is actually a way to progress. Now, now that I'm talking with you, Andrew, I know I forgot what your question was. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, just like uh, personality traits, like. Yeah. Yeah. You know, obviously we just we we're discussing humbleness fake humbleness or whatever but is there anything else about your character or your personality traits that you feel are very valuable for your development or just um yeah. how your interactions with patients you know those kinds of things
2: uh one character trait i think that has helped me uh and i told you i, I really credit a lot to my mom is to treat every single person with kindness <laughs> uh it's like, put yourself in the other person's shoe. And so when I'm re- working with patients, uh, when they're angry or they're upset or they're depressed, I'm like, how, uh, you know, how would I feel were in that situation? Constantly in pain, for instance. If I'm in pain, like the other day, this last week I had some, t- uh, I had some work done on my, t- my tooth. I'm aching, I'm really aching from all the work they've done. <laughs> and I felt miserable. It's like, so can you? Sorry, it's like can you imagine someone being in pain for so long? It affects you in every aspect. It may come up in anger or depression or whatever. And so it's like, how do I put myself in that person's shoe? And how can I speak from that perspective? And then because of that, on uh, uh, what do you call it? Um, I'm trying to put myself in that shoe I'm mm-hmm. hopefully be able to speak their language to be a little bit more empathetic and be a little bit more patient rather than just trying to get the information and then right. move on
3: <laughs> Right.
2: Uh, that's a challenge I'll tell you because you know well, all of us we are given a certain amount of time mm-hmm. to practice or to see the patient and then if someone is so like how do you spend give them that much time so that you're evaluation and treatment can be factored in into that that set amount of time it's is i would say it's a big challenge <laughs> for all of us
0: gotcha uh,
2: but treat every person like you want the other person to treat you uh, that's a i think a character trait that uh, i've learned from my i would credit again to my mom
0: <laughs> yeah and patients can definitely sense that too, yeah. that you're actually there, yeah. there.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: yeah. Um if going back to uh your company movement leaks, is there 'cause you know, we're running a con ed company here too, is there anything that you did from when you first started to where you are now, like, you know, major adjustments or things that you feel have improved the the continuing education experience?
2: Well, with Movement Links, I think in the beginning, it was basically a, a combination of different approaches that have really impacted me as, as well as what i put to practice. Okay, So in, in many ways, it's how I practice. But as Movement Links has also evolved because I keep evolving. So things that I may have emphasized 10 years ago or 20 years ago I may not have the same emphasis, or I would say I would have layered that emphasis with something else that I actually, um, uh, growing in. (laughs) So I, I would say it keeps evolving because the material that I taught five years ago or last year or 10 years ago might be a little slightly, I won't say different, but might be layered on with a deeper understanding. So. I think it's going to keep evolving as all of us evolve I don't think learning ever stops (laughs) so (laughs) it's gonna keep evolving
3: yeah Yeah, I I took uh, movement links I think back in 2009 and I I was just being involved with it in Portland Oregon uh, with Dave Curry Hara I was surprised at like how much it had changed and Even like from the years that it was taught, like in Portland, he was like, "This is how we're thinking about it now," and I was like, "Oh wow, that's like, it's awesome that you can change it like that and kind of be malleable um, with like the thought process." So I think I I really appreciated that about it. It wasn't just like, "This is how it's always been and this is how it's gonna go," because I feel like a lot of people are very dogmatic and they won't change their approach at all. Versus you, where you're like, "Yeah, this is this is how I used to think about it. This is how we think about it now." Um, A question that I had for you. and I mean, we're—I'm familiar, and a lot of people are familiar with like your the, the people that have made you who you are. Starting with like people in California, like Joe Godges. Can you kind of take us through like a brief, like kind of history of like kind of the people you bumped into that impacted your career?
2: Sure, of course. So after graduation from um, Northern Illinois University in '85, I had the privilege of going to a conference, like maybe. a thousand people or more. This was in Anaheim. And when I heard Dr. Shirley Sarman speak, and somehow something connected with her, with what she was saying, and she was talking about the movement, muscle imbalances, she didn't even call it movement impairment syndrome at that time, it was muscle imbalances. And it was a two day talk in this group, there was no lab, but I ate it up. (laughs) I went home. I'm like, I don't see any publications. She, I was like, I just want to learn much more about this muscle system that she was talking about. So of course the books that I was really influenced by was, uh, Florence Kendall's muscle manual muscle Test. So I basically read it from cover to cover. I mean, it was probably next to my bed, bedside <laughs> because that was what I was e- eating it up. And then the little that wow. I knew at that time, I started giving in services because I was so excited about this. Like, how come we don't think life like this? And it started connecting to me much more and more. And then I just started reading as much as I could. The little we had at that time, <laughs> we didn't have internet at that time. So it was mostly books. And going to the library. To make a long story short, then in 92, um, the person who really influenced me was Joe Godges. He was the director of the Kaiser Permanente's uh, residency fellowship program at that time. And I was one of his fellows or residents at that time. And during that whole year, you know. He basically, you know, got my skills up to snuff to a better place, I would say, because at that time, during that time, there were no residencies of fellowship. So many of us basically learned our, our, got ourselves better through Con Ed. And you know, all of us, we can learn quite a bit in Con Ed, but as far as the refining skills and someone basically over your shoulders, like, hey, why did you do that? What were you thinking? I mean... You don't get that from Conant as much. This is like more right. one-on-one, just like all of you. You three have gone through the mentoring program. So that was challenge. So Joe was one of my big, uh, I say, heroes that <laughs> pushed me beyond my comfort zone. During that year, I had the privilege of meeting Professor Yanda. He came to speak at the uh, Kaisers program. And I'm like, when I listened to this man speak on muscle imbalances, he took that knowledge, that that background to a different level because now he talked about the functional approach, which actually involves the CNS, which was fascinating because I was more exposed during that time more from a biomechanical model, which is the tension relationship, whereas Professor Yonder took it to the CNS level and that kind of connected with me because of my background with working with neurological patients. And I would say he opened this incredible door to a deeper, or I say, understanding of, I could, would call it the functional approach. Through him, I met, uh, through Professor Yanda. I was exposed to the Prague School of manual Medicine. So I traveled to Prague, uh, the Czech Republic, to actually study under him, to be exposed much more, to that's when I met the I would say the the greats, the pioneers of Prague School, uh, which was Professor Levitt, Professor Valet, and and uh, I cannot uh, a, a number more where I don't mm-hmm. remember the names offhand right now, but those are my I would say my teachers. And then coming back to the states after. Um, working with a lot of these prog school Uh, other folks that have influenced me actually would be i would say um professor mcgill stuart mcgill we brought in a lot of the research with biomechanics giving us a reason for why we do what we do evidence in many ways so i would say he would be a really important person and then and then of course through our through being exposed to many other approaches. Uh, the other one, I would say, uh, Pavel Kolar, which was the DNS concept, which was kind of interesting because before Professor Jana passed away, he said, Claire, you need to learn from this man. And incidentally, Kolar, or pa- pa- Pavel Kolar, was also his student. <laughs> and so in some ways, professor yanda knew that his time was coming to an end and it's like passing the baton and told me hey you got to learn from this man and so there i go (laughs) another journey to the dns track which actually took the functional approach to another level as well so you can see now it's like coming full circle of course you cannot talk about the functional approach without including the pain sciences that we are in today so folks like um um, paul hodges or Mosley, i would say they have really kind of kind of got me to reframe the understanding of movement as a way to the cns to actually modulate input into the brain (laughs) to actually kind of help maybe reduce the threat and potentially also reduce the, I call it flight or fight response, the, paras- the sympathetic nervous system. And hopefully with can help with pain reduction or coping mechanisms. So now you can see the full circle. <laughs> I'm sure there are many more approaches I was was influenced, but these are the ones that come straight to my head right now.
1: Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, Clara, what I'll say is, you know, um, the beauty of all this is, you know, you can see just the layers, just like what we were talking about earlier, and just how you've you've added layer after layer of, um, you know, into into your 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 concept and your thought process. And the beauty of it is, you you shared this in in all the Movement Links series. I, I, I speak as um, as being, you know, um, a faculty in the in the Movement Links, um, you know. Uh, Company itself, but the the one thing I'll say is year after year, we're always trying to make sure that we we try to incorporate a lot of the learnings that that you bring and try to share any learnings that we as a group uh, find. And and I think that's one of the beauties of the, the 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 courses and such that you teach. There's always an evolution in in yeah. those in those courses.
2: I I of course now that comes to mind. The thing that uh, have also influenced me quite a bit is Robert Schleip or the fascia mm. community. So it's been really interesting, you know, with Thomas Meyer's work with Tittle and Benninghoff, and then now Robert Schleip giving so much evidence. And then of course, Stecco, uh, the Italians. I mean, fascia is so part, is so intricately um, intertwined with muscles that I honestly don't know if you can separate the two. So when I'm and at the same time, I'm always thinking, when we're talking about working with muscles fascia is always involved but more than that i would say we are not just working with muscles or fascia or joints we are actually trying to actually promote or i would say impact the brain so in many ways we're actually trying to get the brain (laughs) retrain or work brain training more than Mm -hmm. muscle or joint training or fascia training it's brain training
0: (laughs) gotcha do you feel like uh you have any more journeys you could foresee yourself taking (laughs) in the near future
2: i don't know you know yeah um i i i'm a planner but there Mm -hmm. are some things you just can't plan for it's very true and so sometimes uh the opportunities have come to me my growth is actually when i see things coming landing at my feet <laughs> is it, is it, it's like it's landed it's like i'm a very i would say uh i don't take i don't like to take risk i don't like change <laughs> at the same time When that change comes in different forms and from different peoples, I'm like, okay, uh, I cannot ignore. (laughs) (laughs) And so in many ways, I don't know how to say it, put it in words, but it's like it finds me, and I just need to listen. And as I said, sometimes I don't listen very well because... I said, ah, that's not that's it's, it's nothing. But when it comes in different forms, from different peoples, I was like, I gotta listen. So my next journey, I really don't know. <laughs> I'm gonna continue doing what I'm doing now. It's actually investing in the next generation, hmm. uh, to to educate, to inspire, and to empower. Not just the next generation of physical therapists. But I would say to every patient that I, or every person I I I encounter is to help inspire them to empower them to actually take charge of them of their life, so to speak. Or if you want to put pain or 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 their movements or I would say life. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't know if I made any sense there, but. Um, that's how I'm going to see. I'm going to continue doing what I'm doing, um, and then if and if I have been given another project or another phase, another, uh, I call it gift, mm-hmm. then I need to be responsible to to be true to it.
1: <laughs> Clerk, can, can I ask? In terms of, so let me take it back. And in terms of movement links, right now as a company, where does it fit in the current continuing education landscape based upon a lot of the the information you just shared with us, with the influences that you've had and kind of where you want to go with educating and inspiring um, others and empowering the next generation. Where does it
2: fit? Oh, that's a very big question um i i see movement links in many ways is giving people some foundation it's basic material yes but then to me you can never ignore the basics and this is what uh, perhaps i see movement links as finding the basics but then beyond the basics we need to master it <laughs> so like Someone can take movement links the first time. Oh, this is what it is. it's just about uh, balancing stuff out. Yes. But then if you take those principles, because during movement links, we are going to expose you to different approaches. And some approaches will connect more with certain people. So some folks are, Hey, you know what? I heard her talk quite a bit of Shirley. I'm really curious what the MSI model is. Uh, Maybe it connects with them. So they start exploring to MSI or the fascia or DNS or, um, or, or, or anything yeah, <laughs> that we, anything. we bring up. Yeah? yeah. So they, people will start exploring and it's like, I, I I want people to do that. I want people to catch a hole because I know not every approach will meet everybody's needs so movement links in some ways is giving you a a, like combination of different approaches and then if something connects with you you i mean hopefully you'll take the the, you 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 will take i call it you take the initiative to go learn more so this is how i i see it as moving that you're going to use movement links as a springboard to going deeper if you choose to something else and i've seen this happen in a lot of folks which actually makes me really happy uh, it's like they they will bring me the, you know some of them are really like uh doing really well in different approaches it's like but they told me that that Hay-Mufling gave them the, the basic foundation to even look at the the body as a whole system rather than isolated areas so when i hear that i'm like oh i've done my job i i i if one person comes uh says that to me out of a class or a hundred, I'm like that's this is the power of one
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah
2: done my job <laughs>
0: what are what are some of the uh more obscure places that people have taken their movement links education
2: well, what do you mean by that
0: like uh you, like where have they used the movement links education to uh, apply it to a different approach. So, like, what is, like, something that is a little bit out of the box that they use what you taught to integrate into their practice?
2: Uh, so I'm not sure how to, to even uh, uh, answer the question. It might be a confusing question. See, <laughs> yeah. I don't see movement yeah. links as an, an approach. It's a, a system mm-hmm. It's a system of thinking, I would say. It's a systematic approach. And you can actually insert whatever approach into that system, systematic uh, um, evaluation, so to speak. So I, would, I always think of movement links as not a way to teach you techniques. <laughs> yeah. It's actually uh, a way of thinking. How do you connect the dots in many ways? It's like you can bring. Your evaluation skills from other approaches into this systematic evaluation, and then as far as treatment goes, it's like it's more of a thought process. I would say, uh, uh, uh what do you guys think? <laughs>
3: I, I had the I had the benefit of being mentored by uh, Jeremy Die, who was like a movement uh, therapist, mm-hmm. and you know, I think for me and i'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this claire like it, i never thought of like physical therapy as art but that's when i started i i i'm like a a more of an artistic type of person and so like the kind of approach where you're just kind of hammering people and pushing on them all day it it got old after a little while cuz once i did that i didn't know what else to do to people and it was just kind of like more black and white and so this kind of opened up my eyes and i was like oh this is you can kind of take this wherever you want to you know wherever you want to go as long as you understand the foundational concepts like you could make any sort of exercise and I think that's where DNS kind of took me even down like a more of a rabbit hole but to me that's how I saw it I was like this is artistic like this is like like why could why could somebody go into a room and treat the exact same patient using the exact same concepts and come out with a different result and I know, Claire, you have so many tricks up your sleeve. Like, I've, when I was going through the movement fellowship, I would learn, I would use all the techniques that we would learn in classes. And then Claire would use the exact same one. I was like, how did you do that? But I didn't. And I mean, I, I know that you have like a lot of experience under your belt, like way more than me. And I, it was just interesting to me how you just have like this touch or this feel or like this intuition. But to me, like, the take home message was, I can be artistic with this and I like art.
2: That's right. Yeah. For, it's an art. <laughs> I
1: mean, to me, it's, it's getting that global perspective. I think you, you, you said it earlier. Um, I think in school and even just coming out, um, when, when, I was, um, when I was practicing, I, I used to just think certain joints. I wasn't connecting the dots, just like what you said. Um, and once I was more exposed to it, I started to get more of a global view. And as time went on, and I was exposed to more of the concepts, and, and you know I went through DNA and I went through uh, you know Movement Links and uh, and such. It was it was like I, I learned more and more about uh, taking on a more global approach. How how something down low could affect something higher up. You know I've I've had patients who've, who've had headaches, and I've I, I've I've realized that you know the you know something was going on down lower, and and you know I would have never thought that. In, in the in, in my original paradigm or thinking so um, i think that's the biggest takeaway i've seen
0: thanks so so at this point in uh your career uh what is the main inspiration that you have that keeps you going
2: um my patients i would say people oh, inspire yeah. me yeah um mm-hmm. there i can think of it as i'm talking about this, I can think of a few patients of mine long. There are um, like a, a, a MS post polio myopathy patients that actually, I would say they're older, they have a bigger, broader perspective. They've gone through tons of rehab. They inspire me because with, with, when you work with neurological patients, it's like the same old doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. You have to be creative. You have to be artistic in that sense. You need to kind of hone that craft, yeah. But then it's not just craft. There's a person in front of you. How do I read them? You know, you know. Sometimes their performance is a lot has to do with how they're feeling as well. If they're going through stressful times, it's like how do you read into people? Oh my gosh! It's like, do you know how hard this is? <laughs> so. They inspire me to be better. I was like, I always, I always thank them. I have three people in mind. They inspire me to be a better version of me. So when, uh, so anyways, they're also my biggest encouragers. Isn't that interesting? They are the hmm. some of the most challenging patients I have because it's so multi-complex, <laughs> but they are also the ones that encourage me. They say, Hey, you know, one day, one, one of my patients told me, it's like, no, I, uh, it's not working so well today, isn't it? I'm like, yeah, you're right. It's not working so well. And she said, look, Claire, uh, it's not, it's, today's not a good day. Uh, it's not your fault. It's not my fault. It's just not a good day. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that was like so encouraging. <laughs> she said, And you know what they said? I mean, I really like she said, I know you're really trying hard and I really appreciate it, And that's what counts. And so... Isn't that inspiring? I, <laughs> so because yeah. of folks like them, uh, folks like these patients um, they they actually will spur me on to be a better version of me. You know, I, I strive to do that. And of course cut myself some slack too if I don't do well. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. So all right.
0: Well Andre Jay, do you have any Last questions you'd like to ask Claire because we are coming up on an hour, so I think I do. We have enough, yeah.
3: So Claire, in this pandemic, all of us have a lot more downtime.
2: Oh yeah. Uh,
0: Oh yeah.
3: What are you doing these days to keep yourself (laughs) busy?
2: Oh, you know, uh, I wouldn't say busy. I mean, actually, my dogs love the fact that I'm home much more. So is walk the dogs much more than I ever have, and enjoying nature. So they've learned. Oh, it's a great way. I mean, out in nature much more uh, being with them, walking the dogs. I was like, and then gardening, of course, nature. (laughs) So I've actually, my garden looks much better now than it ever has because I actually have time to actually tend to it. (laughs) (laughs) Helps. So hopefully that will keep up even when things start picking up. So, Yeah. (laughs)
0: I I just remember going to your house and your dog was just running laps around the backyard for like two hours straight. So I'm, yeah, yeah, I'm sh- I'm sure they appreciate the multiple walks a day.
2: Yes, yes, for sure.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anything else, Jay?
1: No, uh, I'm I'm good. No, I mean I could talk for hours, but yeah, you know, I I think, I think we covered a lot of ground here today.
2: Well,
0: yeah. Thanks, <laughs> Claire. We we have to have you back on in a few months. All right. Because we're, uh, we're going to think about a lot of questions that we forgot to ask you that are burning. <laughs> so we'll do a follow up part two sometime. Yeah. Thank but, you uh, for making
2: this so conversationally. You know, because, so I appreciate each one of you, honestly. And as I said before, you guys have spurred me to be better versions of me. Your questions and your encouragement, your support over the years. It's just been extremely meaningful to me. So thank you.
0: Yeah, and and likewise, thank you. I mean, like I said before, um, not to beat beat a dead horse, but no one has had a bigger impact on us than you. And uh, you're the greatest physical therapist I have ever encountered. So and that's uh, not... just my opinion not shared by many people that you've touched over the years. And, uh, you know, keep, keep doing the great work.
2: Thank you. Yeah. I will. <laughs> Thanks, Claire. Really, Thank you. Yeah.
0: To learn more about Claire Frank, visit movementlinks.com. For con-ed and travel destinations, visit jetsetrehabed.com.